So we're joined today by Jeff Silverslag from the Robeson Institute, where he's the chief medical officer. He's also the medical director at two of the dialysis facilities affiliated with New York Presbyterian Hospital, as well as the associate director of the Nephrology Fellowship Program at Weill Cornell Medical Center. Jeff, thanks for joining us for today's discussion. My pleasure, Todd. Thanks for having me. As a starting point, can you describe the Robeson Institute and just give us a feel for um, sort of its role in the, the greater New York um, healthcare environment? Sure. Uh, so the Robeson Institute was uh, founded in 1971 as an outgrowth uh, of the Cornell Division of Nephrology with the idea of being able to provide dialysis care um, for patients in New York City at a time when academic departments of medicine um, did not want to invest in, in dialysis. Uh, Robeson performed the first dialysis treatments in New York City as early as 1963 um, and established the first freestanding dialysis center in New York City uh, in the early 1970s. Um, and its mission really has grown beyond that as a nonprofit um, in terms of really efforting to, to serve the community, to understand kidney disease in the community, uh, risk factors for it, how to address some of the social determinants, particularly that seem to be heavily associated with, with chronic kidney disease, um, as well as to provide uh, ongoing care in all measures for patients with chronic kidney disease. So certainly uh, we provide dialysis. We currently run nine dialysis centers in New York City providing uh, all modes of dialysis care to about 1,500 patients with, with chronic kidney disease. But we also uh, co-manage the renal transplant program at, at New York Presbyterian Hospital's Wild Cornell Medical Center, uh, where we've performed over 6,000 transplants uh, since the early 1960s. Um, and so our emphasis is really to individualize the care of each patient and ensure that they're getting the care that suits them whether that's in center dialysis, home dialysis, kidney transplant, um, or medical management without dialysis for certain selected patients. And can you describe, just for those of us who don't live in New York City, just as we think about the five boroughs, kind of um, where most of your patients live and where most of your facilities are located? Sure. Uh, so New York City's five boroughs, um, obviously the Bronx, Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn and, and Staten Island. Um, and we have facilities uh, in three of those boroughs currently. Uh, we have two in Manhattan, two in Queens, and, and five in Brooklyn. Um, and we will soon be opening one in, in the Bronx as well. Manhattan is certainly the most populous of the five boroughs, um, and, and Brooklyn is second most. So most of our patients do live in Brooklyn. Um, and our facilities are scattered from the very westernmost parts of Brooklyn, just across the bridge from Manhattan, uh, all the way out to the easternmost uh, reaches which, which approach Kennedy Airport. In, in terms of how COVID-19 has affected New York City, my impression is, is that it hasn't been sort of evenly distributed across the boroughs. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, which parts of the city have been the most um, sort of overwhelmed and which maybe where there's been less of the, the virus? Sure. Um, so certainly it's a little bit difficult to know because there isn't widespread testing, particularly for, for those individuals who have less severe symptoms or no symptoms at all. Um, but there do seem to be hotspots 
um, scattered in each of the boroughs, most notably in, in the western part of Queens, where there's been a lot of attention paid to Elmhurst Hospital, particularly as an overwhelming, overwhelmed facility. Um, and we've certainly seen that uh, in our dialysis populations in, in Queens. There have been hotspots in Brooklyn and in Manhattan as well, um, which are right that it's not evenly spread throughout the city. It's, it's been certain hotspots um, in, the, in the different boroughs uh, as to where it's been most heavily affected. Um, at this point, we, we certainly um, have seen patients who have COVID infections uh, at all of our dialysis facilities. Um, and in my discussions with other providers in New York City, uh, that seems to similarly be the case that it's not sufficiently isolated that there are uh, facilities that don't have cases of, of COVID. It also sounds like there's a real challenge as you go sort of upstate toward um, Westchester County as well. I'm sort of curious as to just geographically what the distance would be from, say, you know, the center of Manhattan to, to the hospitals there. Yeah, so I live in um, White Plains, which is kind of the central part of Westchester County, um, and it's a grand total of 20 miles from my office in, in Manhattan. Um, so it's all geographically pretty close, um, and because of the population density, um, I think that that is a major reason why the spread has been so vast and so quick uh, in New York City and, and the surrounding counties. Uh, both Westchester and, and Nassau County and now Suffolk County in, in on Long Island, um, but also New Jersey, uh, particularly in Connecticut, a little bit less so, I think. Since we sort of shift gears into what's happened in New York City, I'm just kind of curious, or sort of the greater New York area, if you were to kind of organize your thoughts in, in three time frames, so kind of before you hit kind of the high water mark, the period of kind of the, the greatest number of cases and the most challenges, and then as you're starting to move toward hopefully um, a lessening, I'm just curious as to your observations in, in each of those phases. So maybe just starting with, as as you knew um, the virus was spreading and you knew there were more and more patients, what kinds of things were you doing? What were your observations? What would you like to share? So initially, as, as I think people know, the first cases and the first deaths in the United States were reported out of a dialysis facility. And so working with ASN, we put together a COVID-19 response team, which grew out of our emergency partnership initiative, which I co-chair with Nikki Lurie, um, and the ASN uh, partnership with the CDC. Uh, the Nephrologist Transforming Dialysis Safety Committee. Um, and our initial attention was really on the dialysis centers and the patients receiving care there because we thought that the chronic kidney disease might predispose patients to COVID-19 infections. Um, certainly as the infection rate grew both in New York City and nationally, we came to recognize community spread as a major factor uh, more so than the fact that patients had chronic kidney disease. Um, but that said, we've certainly seen many patients in the dialysis facilities become infected, and probably because of the combination of their comorbid medical conditions um, and the fact that they're generally an older population, these patients are susceptible certainly to, to more serious outcomes uh, than the general population is. 
although as has been reported in the, in the press generally nowadays, um, there are certainly plenty of younger patients who, who have died from COVID infections. We haven't talked as much about the transplant population, either people with kidney transplants who may be immunosuppressed or um, people who were scheduled to, to receive transplants or were, were potentially during this period going to have the opportunity for a kidney transplant. Since you mentioned that that's part of, of, of Rogerson as an institution and obviously the, the, the facilities in which you work, I'm just curious as to what's happened with, with those two patient populations. So initially, uh, there was a lot of fear that transplant patients would be very seriously affected by COVID um, because of the immunosuppression they require. Um, our data so far has been that transplant patients actually seem to experience a much milder form of infection when they get infected. Um, there was actually a paper published, I believe it was in the clinical journal of the ASN, looking at Columbia's experience with, with transplant patients. And I think ours has similarly shown that those patients do well. There is some suggestion that one of the med immunosuppressive medications that transplant patients take uh, calcineurin inhibitors, so either tacrolimus or cyclosporin, may actually inhibit the uptake of the virus um, and therefore may be protective for patients uh, who have kidney transplants who take those medications. So it's really been a lot better than was feared in terms of how this disease affects patients with kidney transplants. In terms of actually performing the transplants, that's been one of the very sad parts of, of uh, the COVID-19 infection is that most transplant centers, and certainly all of the ones here in New York, um, have shut down their transplant programs um, because certainly there's a lot of fear that if a patient were to undergo a kidney transplant um, and then become and, and be immunosuppressed intentionally, um, that that patient might pick up a COVID infection because obviously the hospitals are treating numerous patients uh, with COVID infections. And so I think that out of an abundance of caution, uh, transplant programs have, have been shut down. Um, and hopefully now that we're, we, we're on the down, downward side of the slope, uh, those programs will open back up because I know that there are many patients, both here in New York and around the country, uh, who are waiting for and, and for kidney transplants. And many have, have live donors who are potentially available for them. In your role as the Associate Director of the Fellowship Program, I'm sure you spend a lot of time with fellows, but also students and residents, um, both in nephrology but across across medicine. I'm just curious as to how you think this crisis and this experience will affect them as they complete their training, but then also move into their careers. So I guess the first thing I would say is that I've been incredibly impressed by um, the dedication uh, and enthusiasm with which our trainees have attacked uh, COVID-19 and have cared for patients, many of whom obviously, as we all know, are alone in the hospitals. They're obviously very scared. Um, and for the trainees, it's not only the long hours and the stress of caring for these very sick patients, but occasionally having to care for their colleagues who become sick. Um, so it's been an incredibly stressful time for them. Um, in talking with a number of our trainees, they show a remarkable resilience um, and have truly 
stepped forward in, in trying to understand the COVID-19 infection um, and ask questions about acute kidney injury and COVID-19 um, and about how the, the disease impacts patients with chronic kidney disease and looking for opportunities to really study and, and understand that so that not only we can, we can look back on our experiences, but so that we can look forward uh, again to the next series of infections that may come. Um, I do worry that, that some of the uh, students and residents who see our fellows working so hard and, and so tirelessly uh, on patients with, with very severe disease um, will we'll choose not to, to enroll in nephrology uh, fellowship programs because of it. On the other hand, I'm hopeful that some will see it as a tremendous opportunity to provide care for patients um, who are very seriously ill uh, and to help deal with some of their most challenging issues. So, so the other thing that seems to be happening from a workforce perspective is that nephrology nurses um, seem to be getting sick with COVID-19 at a, at a pretty alarming rate, and that's creating real challenges in terms of having um, an adequate supply of, of, of nurses. And I know the American Nephrology Nurses Association has been trying to identify nurses from other parts of the country to come to help in, in New York City. I just wondering if you could give us a little more background in terms of that situation. Sure. Um, so as you well know, uh, nephrology nursing has been an area of shortage uh, in the United States for some time. Um, and we've been working very hard to try to encourage nurses to enter nephrology nursing um, and the various aspects of it, both in, based in dialysis facilities, but also hospital-based uh, nephrology nursing. Um, and it, it has been a real problem. Um, and you're right that in, in the COVID-19 crisis, we've had significant numbers of, of staff um, become infected and, and need to have time off, um, either due to isolation or due to medical complications, so that it's, it's increased the demands on the nursing staff. Um, again, I have to say that much like the trainees, they've truly been remarkable in how much they stepped forward and bonded together uh, to try to, to help the patients um, through this, this crisis. Um, they, like the patients, are clearly scared uh, about the possibility of getting infected, but it, it's always been just incredible to me how close the patients and the staff become with one another um, and how dedicated our nurses are uh, to their patients. Do you have a sense, in terms of fear, from a healthcare professional's perspective, are you more fearful at the beginning or in the middle at the height? I'm just, I'm wondering kind of how that manifests as you're caring for patients. Yeah, I mean, I think fear of the unknown is always the greatest fear. And I think that when you don't know about the infection, complications, rates, and the like, um, that's the greatest fear. Um, with this, I think it's been a little bit different because early on, particularly for our staff and, and for trainees, there was the idea that, well, you're young and you're healthy, so you're not really at risk even if you get infected. And certainly, as we touched on before, we have seen young people who do poorly uh, if they become infected. So I think that to a certain extent, uh, the fears have not gone away as they might have uh, under under typical circumstances as people get to know it. So before we shift to the, the downward 
side of the slope. I'm curious, is during the, the sort of height of the surge, you had mentioned the ASN COVID-19 response team in, in your role as, as co-chair. I'm curious as to which activities or which moments um, stick in your mind as you think about it, what comes to mind first in terms of the activities and, and some of the, the things that have happened. First, it's been an incredible group of people to work with, um, from Alan Klager, who, who's been my co-chair, um, to all of the physicians who have participated in the now four subgroups that we've, we've put together. Uh, we have a transplant subgroup and a kidney injury subgroup, uh, an in-hospital dialysis subgroup and a acute kidney injury subgroup, and an outpatient dialysis subgroup. Um, and the staff of ASN has been just incredibly wonderful to work with, um, from teaching me how to use Twitter to helping us put together a series of webinars um, and conference calls with uh, chief medical officers of the dialysis providers so that we can ensure that we were getting them as up-to-date and accurate information um, from the CDC, CMS, and other sources as we possibly could get them. Um, and I think that it's really been a, an incredibly beneficial relationship for everybody, um, giving people an opportunity to gain information, exchange ideas. Um, at, at points in this, um, there's been considerable discussion of how to deal with some of the very severe shortages that we've faced. So, for example, in New York City, uh, we've had very severe shortages of continuous dialysis supplies, um, particularly the fluids for dialysis. Um, and obviously, early on in all of this, there were very severe shortages of personal protective equipment. Those seem to have abated a bit uh, at this point. Um, but ASN has done really a wonderful job of helping the hospital-based uh, dialysis community to connect with uh, resources both in government and in the private sector um, to help deal with the acute dialysis supplies issue. Um, and I want to give credit to all of the people that we've worked with. Um, again, people in, in government at, at the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, in the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness Response Office, in the Food and Drug Administration, um, and in CMS, all of whom have been wonderful. And I want to give tremendous credit to the leadership both at Baxter and at Next Stage and Fresenius, um, who have been wonderful to work with in helping us to identify the, the needs um, at various hospitals uh, in New York City um, and to ensure that they're able to get the supplies that they need so that all of the patients have been able to be treated. Um, so it's really been a, a wonderful opportunity and an incredible partnership um, between the physicians in the community, the American Society of Nephrology, the government, and the manufacturers. So I'm curious, you mentioned that you have you live about 20 miles from the hospital, and so, you know, you are in the car a fair amount each day. I'm just curious what you listen to. Um, so aside from ASN webinars, which I enjoy listening to, um, I'm, I'm very much a sports fan, um, lifelong Mets fan, and unfortunately they, the Mets haven't provided the World Series championship in a long time, but, you know, you keep trying. Um, so I listen to a lot of the sports radios. Um, and I do enjoy um, listening to soundtracks of Broadway musicals as well. I'm sure you've been listening to a lot of the, the parodies and, and others where people are making up uh, COVID-19 related songs to uh, 
to Broadway show tunes. So um, it's probably as good a note to go out on as any. So um, with that in mind, thank you very much for taking the time. And also, you know, really more importantly, everything you're doing to help ASN, but, but the broader community, particularly the people with kidney diseases and kidney failure, kidney transplants, I, I can't thank you enough for everything. Well, very kind of you to say, Todd, and, and again, frankly, to you and all of the ASN leadership, it truly is an honor to work with all of you and to think that we're able to have a positive impact on the community and on our patients.